0: Hey gang, before we start today's episode, I wanted to take a second to talk about merch. The best way to support our show, the best way to support In Love With The Process, is to go to inlovewiththeprocess.com, click on the merch button, and pick up one of our cool new limited edition t-shirts. I've got two t-shirts up there right now. I've got the storyboard t-shirt, which was sketched and designed by myself. Thank you very much. Uh, And we also have the 12KM uh, X-Ray Skull Shirt. Now, all these shirts are going to have a limited pressing. Uh, By the time this show comes out, um, they're probably going to have had its first run of uh, pressings put out there. But these are pre-orders, guys. So what we're doing is we've teamed up with a really great merch company. We take your orders. We send them all out at the same time. These are a limited run. Um, I'm probably going to put out just a certain amount of the storyboard shirt. And if you guys love it, we're going to be releasing new different t shirts over the course of the year, different stuff for you guys to love, to wear, to promote the show with. And all of the proceeds that uh, go through the t shirts go to support the show 100%. So we're going to be using those to pay for all the bullshit that the show needs. Stay up and running. So, really excited to have you guys wearing our shirts, really excited to be able to provide limited edition collectible items uh, for a small fee. So like I said, go to inloveoftheprocess.com and order your shirt today. Good morning and welcome to the brand new episode of In Love With The Process. I'm your host, Mike Petchy. How are you? What is new? Welcome to a brand new episode. Very excited about today's show because we're going to get nerdy. I know a lot of our listeners out there are filmmakers and they're like, Mike, we want to get deeper. We want to get into the tech stuff. Let's talk about what's new and cool in filmmaking. And uh, that's what we've done with today's show. I'm going to give a shout out to Liam. Liam is the one that hooked this one up. He's like, Mike, we got to get real deep and nerdy about this technology that they're using for the Mandalorian. Um, And so we've done the homework for you guys. We've gone uh, deeper than other podcasts have. We've created an episode that actually talks about how this tech works, talks about the new jobs associated with this tech, uh, and talks about uh, the people behind the scenes that make it look so great because... For those of you who don't know what we're talking about, I'm talking about the volume. I'm talking about that really crazy LED wall uh, stage setup over at ILM. The uh, LED backgrounds that they're using on set to be able to shoot foreground elements like actors on a small set, small stage, and make it look in real time like they're on a planet out in the middle of nowhere, right? and so when you're looking at this stuff in the beginning we just see some behind the scenes photos it's like super cool they have like these giant led tvs and then they could just turn a camera onto it and everything works out perfectly well it's not necessarily the case there's a lot of really important stuff that goes on behind the scenes we're talking color calibration we're talking about uh, lens profiling there's all sorts of really interesting tech shit that goes on that we're going to get deep into into this episode and I'm very excited because we were able to get the virtual production supervisor of Mandalorian, a very interesting dude who has not only worked on this show, but he has done work on really great video games, games that we all have grown up and loved. Uh, Have you guys played Dead Space? Remember Dead Space? That game was completely scary, not to mention it was completely immersive. It was like one of the coolest horror, games horror sci-fi games out there uh he was a, an art director on that he also worked on battlefield hardline he's worked for companies like craves lucasarts ea and now he's at ilm industrial lights magic george lucas's company if you live in a cave you don't know what that is it's essentially the top of the top that is the company that has created all the technical standards that cinema has been using now for what how many years over 30 years 40 years whatever it is 50 years i don't even know how long they, those those guys have been around and you would think that being a podcast host i would have done that research so that i didn't sound like a fucking moron out there <laughs> so anyway i'm really excited to introduce you guys to ian ian millam so ian is joining us on the show today he's going to talk about his work in video games we're going to get kind of nerdy about how video games are developed and how a lot of the uh, technical restrictions help shape the stories of video games, which I found fascinating. How many of you guys actually saw the new, what is it, the new PlayStation 5, right? Are we at PlayStation 5 at this point? The new PlayStation 5 demos that are out there. One of the more interesting things that I had seen from a sort of a behind the scenes presentation that they did was that, and it didn't occur to me, and I feel like an idiot for not even thinking about it because I have sort of an insight into how films are made, but I really didn't think about the technical hurdles that a video game would have to go through. Did you ever notice that when you're getting to the next level or you're going to the next stage in the game, your character has to like either walk through a tight corridor or go in and out of an elevator or in and out of a door? There are technical reasons for that, which is interesting. So we'll talk about that on the show as well. So if you're a video game nut and you want to have the uh, curtain pulled a little bit, and understand how these games are designed you're gonna love this episode if you're a Star Wars freak and you want to get some interesting uh, new insight into how the Mandalorian's made and maybe a little insight into what's going on in season two maybe we talk about that uh, then this is the episode for you as well uh, before we get to it I just want to thank everybody who continues to follow me at Mike Petchy on Instagram or the podcast that in love with the process pod that's in love with the process POD on Instagram uh, there, you've seen I've been doing releases on the t-shirts. I've been giving you some behind the scenes on how I did the sketches on the shirts. So if you want a more in-depth look into our new merch and you're like, what shirts? This is new merch, right? We're very excited. I've been threatening that I'm going to be putting out merchandise and t-shirts. We did the painstaking process of designing them and I sketched my hand for the uh, storyboard one. So very excited to get you guys wearing these shirts and everything that you spend on our merch goes towards the show so it's the best way to contribute towards the podcast so if you love the show and you love the podcast go buy the merch and send me some photos of you wearing the stuff because i'll post that man i'll post that on my instagram account give you a shout out uh because i love you guys and i love to see our stuff out there and for those of you who buy a t-shirt, either one, whether you buy the 12KM or you buy the In Love With The Process t-shirt, write to us at uh, In Love with the process at Gmail. I'll make sure that Liam puts a link below and send us your confirmation code and we'll send you a free link to watch 12 cam. because there's a lot of you out there that continue to message me. You've heard me on other podcasts talk about send me a message with your three favorite horror films. We did that for quite some time. I haven't been able to keep up with it at this point what we're gonna do is anybody who buys a t-shirt will get access to see the film for free right trade t-shirt film got it good all right and uh let's just get right into it so strap yourselves in we're about to uh do a little space travel take ourselves into the world of video game making into the world behind the scenes behind mandalorian um we get to sit down with ian and uh He's a really great interview, and I had a really good time talking to him, so I think you guys are going to love this episode, so strap yourselves in, grab those noise-canceling headphones, sit back, relax, and enjoy the brand new episode of In Love With The Process. Ian, thanks for being on the show, my friend.
1: Thanks very much for having me. Good times.
0: Yeah, man. Uh, Very excited to get nerdy with you today. Um, (laughs) Like, uh, big fan of the stuff that you guys are doing for The Mandalorian, big fan of ILM. And as I went through and I did a little uh, research on you, big fan of a lot of the uh, video games that you've worked on in the past, man. So really excited to have you on the show today.
1: Thanks very much. I'm excited to be here.
0: So, for the listeners that uh, don't know who you are yet, uh, let's let's dive into some history here and let's go back in time and and talk about how you got started in the business because you've been doing this for over twenty years at this point, right? I guess that's true. Yeah,
1: <laughs> sneaks up on you, but yes, that's true. Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, see, time travels, man. I always say that. I feel like I'm standing, at, I'm getting in a DeLorean every morning, and the next thing I know, it's two years later. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so you started, how did you start? Do you start as a concept artist? Like, how'd you get into the business? Well, uh,
1: you know, growing up, I, I loved drawing and, and I thought I was going to be a, a Disney animator and you know, so I loved drawing and, and storytelling and all that kind of stuff, but I wasn't a fine artist. <laughs> so, uh, I, I wasn't a painter I, and that wasn't my world. I was more into entertainment and I wanted to draw for a living. So I I studied illustration at first and this is right before computers kind of took over. So this is like early 90s. Mm-hmm. And coming out of school, uh video game teams used to be much smaller. Uh you know, it would just be like seven or eight of us really and wow. you did kind of all the jobs. So uh it, and it but I had really incredible timing because, uh, so be, my first job was as sort of an artist and it was kind of all of it, uh, drawing, doing backgrounds, doing all that kind of stuff. But I was there as computers and 3D modeling and uh, all, all that stuff became the, the the main tools of the trade. At mm-hmm. a time also when they were really, you couldn't do it with sort of a home PC, right? These, this was It was tough to get access to the equipment. Yeah. So I spent the nineties um, making video games, uh, developing my chops and getting access to to the tools from there and then the big turning point in my life was was 99 when I joined uh, Lucas the first time this was Lucas Arts their their gaming division mm-hmm. but it was at, at a time when these all these various divisions the computers uh, were sort of enabling a lot more cross-pollinization a lot more teamwork and a lot of that kind of stuff so I spent time at at Lucas in the late nineties and and early aughts um, working, making video games there, but those games became enmeshed with the movies more and more. And Mm -hmm. so collaborating with ILM and collaborating with LucasArts. And that was sort of the first time when real time work and pre-rendered work and movies and games started to have their first um, virtual production crossovers. And that was Mm -hmm. super, uh, super exciting.
0: That's wild, man. Yeah. <clears throat> and so, like, uh, you worked on one of my favorite games. Actually, you actually did stuff on Dead Space. I thought that game was amazing,
1: by the way. Thank you. Yes. Uh, so after after Lucas I went to uh, EA for a while for um, from the from the early like uh, let's see, 05 until oh mm-hmm. five to like fifteen. So like ten years there. And yes, one of the the great experiences I had there was being the art director on the the Dead Space games.
0: Super cool stuff. I thought that the 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 coolest element of that game was how you guys were integrating the actual menu and the uh, the uh, arsenal for for your character into the character's costume design. I thought that mm-hmm. whole redesign was really the interesting.
1: Whole, our whole mission statement with that game was we were really going to try to push immersion and atmosphere as much as possible, which is tricky in a mm. in a game because we were going for a a horror tone, there were going to be long stretches where we needed to be able to play with the the tension and rhythm and pace to have people have an emotional reaction to it. So it wasn't going to be just like constant monsters because that gets old. One -hmm. of the challenges with a horror video game compared to a horror film is you're just, you're, you're talking about 10, 11, 12 or more hours. So you can't just pace it like a relentless jump scare or you're gonna wear people out and it it won't be a positive experience. So one of the things that also uh, is tougher for for games versus film is the need to convey so much information to the player and have usually a heads up display. So we really invested heavily in how can we maintain that immersion? Like one of the first experiments I did is actually put a HUD up on top of clips from Texas Chainsaw Massacre (laughs) To just to just show people how emotionally distancing it was to have a little number in the corner and to have a couple of things that and that were not aware of what was going on in the action emotionally. Right. And so that was to sort of demonstrate the worth of, hey, can we convey all the information that people need to see? But have it be in content that is part of the experience, part of the emotional truth of what's going on. The way that Isaac even looks at the when you pull up the menu, he looks at the menu too, and That's the world so cool. doesn't and the world doesn't stop. So it just it doesn't constantly remind you, "Hey, this is just a game." And by the way, you need health packs and you know all that kind of stuff. That all is all still there, of course. But emotionally, underneath it, you're you're continuing to have this atmospheric experience.
0: And correct me if I'm wrong, but he could still get hurt while he's in that menu mode, right? Was yeah, it, the game's was still it? live.
1: Now, yeah. there was an argument about whether we would allow pausing at all. Yeah, and yeah. I'm glad that we, you can pause. You just can't navigate the menu and pause at the same time.
0: <laughs> that's great because there's a sense of anxiety. Because I always, I always thought that that would be really. Before that game, I always thought that would be really cool. Where it's like, I'm going to use this health pack while trying to run away from mm. this creature that's trying to eat me. So mm-hmm. I, I thought that was a really cool feature in that game. And then the aesthetic and the and the vibe and the tone. It's funny that you were talking about Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Uh, you, I really felt that. And being a horror director myself, and being a horror fan. Um, that was one of my favorite parts of that game was that it was pretty scary, straight to well
1: and it's it's tough because the the context for games is just different obviously sci-fi is more prevalent compared to to film and and it's and it's tricky in terms of managing people's expectations, especially because it was a new project and people were, didn't really know what to expect or what it was going to be mm-hmm. we i we if anything we over indexed on the on the horror for instance from a color palette perspective or a lighting style perspective um in order for people t- to understand the kind of experience that we they were going to have because we're in space on a spaceship it's a lot of stuff and people we were worried that people were going to think it was going to be like a halo or like a gears of war or some sort of sci-fi action adventure right and so we got deep on like no no here's here's the color theory of horror here is the the various sort of evocative things like we based the the lighting in the spaceship on dennis lights <laughs> uh, because dentist lights have a specific on that arm and the way they're above you all the time. And they feel sort of like you're being interrogated and mm-hmm. they have a kind of a warm yellow to them and a, and a very direct, like a hot direct quality uh, yeah. that to give that same sense of horror uh, to everything.
0: Dude, it's so cool. It's so rad, man. And, and once video games started to make... I remember, I think the first game that did it for me was Resident Evil 2 back in the first PlayStation time. Once once those games really started to get into that cinematic sort of immersion and and being able to walk through lighting, because I'm a lighting nerd, so being able to walk through great cinematic lighting was a huge change for me. Um, and like, it's, it's cool. It's cool to hear how nerdy you are about it too, man.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, we, and it was a great opportunity cause so often in games, because you're developing so much technology along, it'd be like trying to make a movie, but also invent cameras at the same time. <laughs> uh, we, we had an opportunity there to really tailor our technology to do what we wanted to do, even if that meant it couldn't do other things. So Mm. that engine was terrible at like big open worlds with a lot of transparency and, you know, a million light sources or like a big broad wash of light. But what it was great at was uh, small, very detailed environments with a million light sources like a spaceship that didn't necessarily wash the whole scene, but had little tiny effects and little direct spots that we could constantly update and animate and move And then we just designed an aesthetic that really paid off on that. The whole world has a lot of negative space and ribs and stuff, primarily Mm -hmm. because when you rake a spotlight across it, it creates all these cool scissor shapes and this dynamic parallax just from moving the camera, Uh, Uh, which in a world where you're mostly walking down a hallway Mm -hmm. uh, and just sort of creeping and looking around provides a lot of visual interest, even though there's not necessarily a lot that's quote unquote happening in that moment.
0: It's so funny because I kind of had my eyes opened recently when I was watching um, the new promo material for the new PlayStation that was coming out. And they were talking about um, how I I saw a video, I'm going to fuck this up, but I saw a video where they were talking about how they had to design maps for loading and Mm -hmm. how in the past that was a big part of it. And it's funny that it never really occurred to me because I work in the film business. So I know the whole behind the scenes of the film business, but I really hadn't. I was still sort of in the, video games are exciting. You know what I mean? I really didn't know the behind the scenes for it. And so to hear them talk about why certain levels have always been designed this way in the past, and if a character's walking down two corridors, has to squeeze through corridors, it's because there's a loading that's happening in the background for the next level. You need gates. You need to be able,
1: because there's a certain amount of time that it takes to serve up the next area you're going to go to, you need to somehow make it predictable where the player is going to be, either by dropping a gate behind them, literally, that's why there's so many like cave-ins in video games, <laughs> or um, yeah, the they hold squeeze through a crevasse so you can slow down their translation speed for a predictable amount of time, being mm. um, able to serve up the next thing. and And similarly, so they can't immediately turn around because you have to unload something to load something else. And you, there's all these things, you know, like drop down this little bit of cliff that you can't climb up again. So that way we know that you can't go back on us and, and do that kind of stuff. Yeah. There's a lot of, it's a whole art form that, uh, that designers have to make, make it feel elegant despite having all these restrictions.
0: So does that, so this is interesting. So does that, is that like so pretty early on? Do you guys uh, come up with what those restrictions are going to be and then start to design a game around that or is the game? All the time,
1: all the time. Yeah. You have to like, you know, especially because you can't, you know, so another example from Dead Space, we wanted it to be a one the entire time. So uh, Dead Space 1 isn't so much like this, but for 2, again, trying to serve this immersion aspect, we wanted it to feel cinematic but not use any cuts and and not use too much cinematic language because again that felt a little bit distancing mm-hmm. so the idea is that it's from the moment the logo comes up at the end until 12 hours later it's a single shot <laughs> so the problem is we don't know where you're going to go or what you're going to do and we do have some key things that need to occur mm-hmm. so what we would do is um design so a lot of scenes purposely happen right on the other side of a door the mm-hmm. inciting in, the, the inciting incident is you opening a door or a door getting opened in front of you it's because that's one of the few cases where we know exactly where you're standing
0: Right. because you
1: have because right. you, you have to hit the button to start the to open the door and right. so you know we can't start it 10 feet back in the hallway because we don't know where you are and we can't use a camera cut to su- to to teleport you to where we need you to be for the ensuing scene um, or we will use a an off screen inciting explosion or a something that will motivate a whip pan to where we need you to see and where we need to to need you to move a little bit, but in such a fast way that you don't really notice that we that we teleported you a little bit into the spot that we need you to be for this big storytelling moment to happen. So those those restrictions that start with, okay, here's a goal. We want this to be a, a single shot. And then it's like, oh, okay. And then now writing stage, you know, when you're putting a, a scene on its feet, we have to write to those restrictions.
0: Yeah, that's so cool. That's fascinating. And then, um, so, so, when you develop this game, you guys. So, to come up with a basic concept for it, what do you do? some sketches, some storyboard work, that kind of thing, and then mesh it together, try to figure out the restrictions based upon the game engine and then and then work your way that way. Is that how it starts?
1: yeah, it's kind of a circle where you know at first, you want the the concept people just don't worry about their restrictions, just just get let's worry about mood let's worry about broader influences and and references and that and that kind of stuff. And, but as early as possible, you do start a. you want to kind of have an understanding of what are your guardrails? What are you going to try to do here? And then the more that the content, uh, you know, is taking those guardrails into account and steering into what this thing in this case, our, our tools are good at, Mm -hmm. uh, then that's when you can get the really, uh, great stuff.
0: And it. Throughout your uh, your career, at this point, uh, was there was there like a game changing tool that came out? Was there a technology that was like, "Fuck, this is going to make storytelling so much different"? That you saw um, in that period of time?
1: I don't know if there's like a been a seismic event. I mean, until we get you know uh, up to the the LED volumes and the, and the virtual production stuff that I, that I got into more recently, which has certainly mm-hmm. been seismic over the course of games. I think it's been the, the, that the tools have gotten to be more mature and prolific. So you're not always remaking them. Mm. And cause the, the thing with, with games is it, the, the number one indicator of quality for a game is your iteration loop because you really don't know if stuff's going to work, even, even the luminaries of the industry only have a little bit of an idea and the loop between having the idea to, to seeing how, what, if it's got potential to seeing if it really does work to then improving it, the tighter and the more turns of that crank you get, the more, the, the better things are going to look. And now that engines are more accessible, and people can uh, can use them more, and they're more mature. At the off, you can see your ideas earlier, get more turns at the iteration can- crank, and hopefully get to get to a higher quality. So that's that's what I would probably say is the maturity of the of the tools compared to having to kind of write your own every time has mm-hmm. been a big 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 deal.
0: Mm-hmm. And then by the tools, you're, you're talking about like the game engines and that kind of thing, right?
1: Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Which so- it used to, it used to be that every studio kind of had their own. And mm-hmm. there's that's still pretty common. A lot of times, especially if you're doing something peculiar or specific, there is a lot of your own tools. But now you're starting to see, right? Uh, whether it's Epic's Unreal Engine that so many people are using and is and has been such a fantastic tool set, but even then, within pr- you know publisher families. Activision has their own tool set. Uh, EA has their own Frostbite tool set that now is being shared across multiple studios. And as each one completes work, they feed that back into the tool set, which then gets, you know, uh, more mature and more powerful and, and starts to snowball on itself. And that every team isn't rewriting from scratch every time. Uh, is a is a big deal.
0: It's also fascinating how that tool set has just sort of created a series of genres for video game industry, period. So like you always have like the first person shooter, which seems to be using the same kind of tool set. You have like the race car games, which has its own basic thing. Sometimes I get annoyed with that when I'm looking at, at video games that are coming out all the time. I'm like, oh my God, it seems like this is just another first person shooter. Or this is doing something else. But I guess it kind of makes sense because those tool sets have been so refined so that if you are going to start, because it costs a ridiculous amount of money dude, to do a video game. Dude. I would
1: say I mean it's
0: not the map so
1: roughly roughly I would say when I in in like 2001 or 2. So like let's say 20 let's just round it to 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. 20 years ago, AAA games there would be uh Many of them, I know. Like when I started at EA in 2005, I think they released 65 games that year. I don't <laughs> know how ma- I don't know how many they'll at, at like a top level. I don't know how many they'll release this year, but I it's six or seven wow. um, of, of like their top AAA kind of titles. And a game, you know, back then I would say would be in the early 2000s might cost 10 million, mm-hmm. uh, you know, ish. Sometimes a little more, a little less. So then as you get to the later 2000s uh maybe in the 30s 30 million 40 million Mm -hmm. um now i mean to play ball at a triple a level you're definitely over a hundred and i've heard of and it's not uncommon for for big games to be in the 200 million and there are outliers that are significantly more than that i'm not including marketing this is just dev um so what happens, what we, what leads to, I mean, of course, that's just an enormous financial risk. By the time you're spending $200 million to make a video game, it needs to appeal to everyone on the planet. Yeah. So similar, similar as you're seeing with blockbuster movies where it kind of, the video game business is like the, the movie business, except it's always summer. It's all tent poles. <laughs> and, uh, it just, and so you see all, you know, when someone, and it's, and the money is all concentrated in the top performers where the you see just ridiculous revenue and then it just falls off an absolute cliff as you get uh, less and less so it it's it's, yeah. it's it's a tough one for sure
0: well yeah it's it's funny cuz you're seeing that in the movie business too like it you wonder so the the budget's being that big is that just because of the workload that's required? How, like, how long does it usually take to get a game finished from development? Is it like two, three years? Like, how long Dep- is it? It,
1: it depends. Um, I know, you know, it's not at all uncommon for a AAA game these days. Like, there's one, uh, you know, some that'll come out right now, definitely more like five,
0: mm-hmm. I
1: would mm-hmm. say, which actually was one of the things I found uh, most frustrating personally when I was, um, you know, directing. Uh, games was just like, I don't know if I want to spend five or six years on anything. And the, <laughs> yeah. and the world changes so much in that time that yeah. I can't, I can't tell you what, you know, if it's right now, I I can't tell you what the video game business is going to be like and the innovations it'll see. I can't design something that's going to be a finger on the pulse of 2026 mm-hmm. uh, right now. Um, that's worthy of, you know, writing me a $200 million check right now for something that'll come out and say, yeah, I, I know, that's a, that's a
0: tall, tall order. Yeah, no. And it's fascinating too, because then what are you influenced by? Cause if you are influenced by a game that is out in the market, when you start that, that video game, is that just mm-hmm. going to be, uh, you know, passe by the time? By right. Years it'll now.
1: be, inc- it'll, it'll totally feel old and lame by the time, and 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 it's exciting that the sea changes that are possible. and when mm-hmm. someone does you kind of see it you know, an example from a couple of years ago would be something like fortnite mm-hmm. um, where you when someone does change the game, haha uh, it is incredibly exciting <laughs> in a way that I think doesn't happen as often in um, in film. but, Uh, Yeah, you can almost guarantee that it's going to happen sometimes, multiple times, sometimes in the six years while you're making yours, and you can wake up and everything you've done feels old.
0: Okay guys, you know the deal This is the time, this is the point in the show Where we have to show love to the men and women That make the show possible And I'm not just talking about you The listeners at home I'm not just talking about you, the listener Who just purchased a t-shirt from us Because you're definitely tops right now You're top of the list if you've done that Big respect for you guys Go to InLoveWithTheProcess.com Pick up your t-shirts there But now we're about to talk about our sponsors And first up men and women that make it possible the dudes over at puget systems if you are a compositor if you are a graphic designer if you're a video editor and you're tired of your machine giving you that pinwheel of death right it just doesn't seem to be going fast enough there's nothing worse than when you're video editing that you don't get real-time playback and you get that lag when you're trying to find that fucking pacing And you're like okay so if i shave five frames off play shave six frames off play shave seven frames off play when you get that lag and it starts to break your rhythm right starts to break the flow you've heard us talk about flow in other episodes breaks that flow in the edit room there's nothing worse than that get yourself a brand new pc a smoking fast pc you're going to save money on it um and you won't have that lag i'm cutting on my puget systems a machine uh, this week we've been doing music videos with it and with music videos I'm sure you guys know you have to sync up multiple takes and I usually have a sequence with video at least 50 video tracks some ranging from 1080 some ranging from uh, 4k they're all different formats and I get real-time playback on my Puget System. So go to PugetSystems.com, check it out there. You can buy a system based upon the software you use. They will suggest a baseline package and then they love to talk with their customers. They love to build custom machines. So reach out to them, let them know what your budget is, what it is you're working on, what it is that you need and they will help you construct a computer that will work perfectly for your needs. Imagine that, a fucking tool that works for you and not a tool that is restricting you. PugetSystems.com check them out. And if you're somebody who isn't in the US and you're like well Puget doesn't ship here to the UK or Puget doesn't ship here to Australia and I know you guys are listening, shout out. Um, Well the good news is they have a consultation program as well. I think it's at like a $500 starting fee. You can contact them. They will walk you through the hardware you need to build your own system. Not a bad deal. PugetSystems.com check them out. Also, returning on the show, as always, our good friends over at Quasar Science. One of the coolest things in the movie business has been LED lighting. One of the best parts of Mandalorian is all this LED tech and all this LED lighting that you can use. So imagine being on the volume and being able to control your background with your iPad or your phone, right? You could change the sky. You could change the way that the sky is colored. And then you also have to have your on set lights for your foreground action right what are you using to throw a little bit of glow into the front face of somebody what are you using to light up these scenes all those leds can also be controlled by an iphone or an ipad and one of the best on the market one of the best manufacturers on the market are friends over quasar science anybody who's a gaffer anybody who works on set will say that if you walk on and say i have a couple quasar tubes they go this guy knows what he's fucking doing so Do yourself a favor, go check out all the brand new stuff that they're selling, all the brand new technology that they're working on. Uh, They're deep into the whole calibration world, trying to get the colors that come off their lights to work accurately with each and every camera that's out there. Um, This is a big issue. This is a behind the scenes thing that a lot of folks aren't talking about. Whether you're talking about the wall at the volume or you're talking about LED lights, each and every camera body sees lights differently. And so it's a very—it's a huge technical feat to get all these cameras to see color the same way. And Quasar Science is at the forefront of that. So go check them out. Go to quasarscience.com and support our friends. Listen to, uh, not listen, click the link below because all these links are traceable links. They'll know that we sent you. All right. Also... As always, supporting us, our friends over at Industry Jump, go to industryjump.com or go visit them on Instagram at industryjump. This is a great community of fellow filmmakers, young filmmakers trying to get out there, trying to build their network, trying to find work. There's a bunch of great ways to get highlighted with these guys. I love them. They've been promoting us and promoting the show, and we love to give them a shout out on our show as well. So go check them out. Go to industryjump.com or follow them on instagram at industry jump all right that's it for the reads let's get right back into it so let's do the transition with you because mm-hmm. you have spent so much time developing games and then uh it makes a lot of sense why you made that transition into what the Metalorian's doing right now because they're essentially using the unreal engine uh for their backgrounds for everything correct
1: uh, yes, that's that that's true. Well, in real time, t- you know, it's part of a whole tool suite of stuff. That uh, yeah, Unreal has been uh, a key part of that tool suite for sure.
0: Mm. So, how did you get? How did you get onto uh, onto that show? What was the process for you
1: It's so weird. I mean, it's like it, it it's you know, and how it goes in a lot of career things. It you know, there's a general the, the ingredients are there, and then suddenly it happens super fast. So I still had a lot of contacts and friends at. At Lucas, and mm-hmm. they had been developing uh, a lot of stuff. You know, they had been thinking in this way for a long time. They were actually using I, ILM used Unreal for previz and um, and kind of simulcam for environment layouts on AI in two thousand one. Oh, so no they've kidding. been they've been on this game for a long time in terms of using a real time engine and a track camera to give filmmakers and everybody a context for what's going to be there later and then that got developed more and more and they were you and then filmmakers have always been interested in this but they didn't want to make a movie in the computer they wanted to be able to have craftspeople like dps and directors use the tools that they were used to Mm -hmm. practical you know camera tools and everything uh but using virtual elements on top of it and then the the big thing that came together was John Favreau had been doing his work on juggle book and lion King mm-hmm. and doing virtual production there and shooting within a real-time engine that later, of course, all got replaced visually and leds anyway. So all this stuff is happening in a, in a broad case. And then ILM, uh, you know, of course has incredible history in this and in, uh, photo real visuals in general and, and visual effects. But the, uh, What they didn't have was a deep real-time bench of talent. So Mm. I had been, you know, basically working in real-time environments and uh, art direction and and all that kind of stuff for, you know, as you said, 20 years by this point. Mm -hmm. And it was literally like, I don't know, two and a half years ago. I think it went from a phone call to me standing on a stage in like three weeks (laughs) where they... And the interview, I'm going to, I'm going to sort of tell on ILM a little bit, the interview was not exhaustive (laughs) because they were, they were, they were really up against it in terms of, they had to deliver, you know, a season worth of sets and all this kind of stuff. And they kind of, and they went, dude, we need someone to go to LA and uh, who we've got an incredible, they they had an incredible team already assembled of like a layout person, uh, a colorist a a scene operator all this kind of stuff but we need somebody that has the the real-time chops and a little bit of you know team operation and leadership history to uh, to help us out can you go down and sort of run this uh what we call the brain bar can you run the the brain bar and the virtual production on set for mm-hmm. this and i didn't you know it's not like they're telling anybody what they're making at this point there's no you know i don't even know what the show is and mm-hmm. I've never been involved because no one had ever built an LED volume of this scale with a ceiling and everything. So yeah, it's crazy. It, was, it was crazy where they, you know, in the span of three weeks, they call me up, they go, can you move to LA for five months? And uh, then they, you know, I finally get down there and they, you know, unlock the door and throw me the keys to this incredible <laughs> 75 foot by 20 foot fully ceiling 5000 LEDs in a seamless array uh, type of deal. And then they show me the magic trick about how this works. And you're just like, wow, this is
0: crazy. Super cool. So what is that thing called? It's the brain bar. Is that what you called it?
1: That's what we call the, the bank. So there's sort of, there's, we, we operate at a couple different levels. There's, we have iPads and mm-hmm. a few of us are in the volume or in video village and next to the director and the DP and the creatives and sort of executing and talking to them about how we want to shape this scene or what we want to have going on. Uh, in the in the virtual content.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And uh, through that iPad, I can do a bunch of changes and color correction and and see manipulation or trigger events and that kind of stuff. But if you want to do Live sculpting of the environment because it's all real time, right? So we can do live sculpting or or relighting and all kinds of stuff. Then of we have a set of powerful workstations in this sort of charity telethon looking thing at the back <laughs> of the stage uh, that that we call the brain bar, where we've got uh, you know uh, ILM artists there live and everybody else. So my job is a combination of executing stuff with the DP and the gaffer like right there, and then if there's something more surgical or or more ambitious that needs to happen. I can radio back to the to the brain bar and be like, "Hey guys, I need blank. Can you rotate this thirty degrees? You see that mountain back there? Uh, it's you know, it's it's a little distracting. Can we kind of mush it down or set it back a little bit, or you know, that kind of
0: stuff. So thing. fun from a, from a being a cinematographer in the past, from a cinematography point of view, where you're able to go, "Can you just move the mountain, mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> but not the sky?" Right? Yeah, I want insane. those clouds over there, but I want the mountain a little bit to the left. It's actually you have to resist. Um, and one of the reasons that um, we we shoot the show also on the back lot uh-huh. is, you know, there's a there's a real temptation that everything looks too perfect. When you can control right. all the variables, you can end up making it look every shot looks gorgeous. But then as you cut the the scene together, it starts to feel untrue. Yeah. And right. you have to be you have to be careful about not perfecting it too much.
0: Yeah, because that's a big, for me, I'll have to send you some of my work so You can see it. I've done uh, horror stuff in the past and uh, sci-fi stuff in the past. And I'm, I'm a practical guy because I believe in the mistakes that happen in practical yeah. stuff. And sure. I, like a, a lot of the classics from my youth, I always reference this one scene from Die Hard where uh, John McClane throws the chain around the, uh, what's his name's neck? I think it was Hans's neck or whoever uh-huh. it
1: was. No, it's not. It's the, it's the ballet guy.
0: Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the blonde. It's the blonde. Mm-hmm. It's, it pulls him down the staircase, and then there's this sort of dolly in, sort of like a crane dolly in that goes in, and that fucking dolly in that camera is shaking like a motherfucker as yeah. he sort of runs that whole track. In in a modern day thing, people would be like, "Let's stabilize that." Like the director would be sweating it in post, going like, "Oh my god, my career is right. over because that." But it it adds so much to the. The energy of that sequence, and if it was stabilized, it would feel too sterilized for me. At that
1: do, point. do you know my so. favorite one of these? Uh, okay. Like recently, do you know about the one in Knives Out?
0: No. What, what's the deal with this? So there's a sh-
1: there, one of the key sequences in Knives Out um, is when the family, and spoilers for anybody, although I won't get into mega spoilers, when the when the family, and I forget her character's name, but the the home aid.
0: Oh, um, um, when yeah, the yeah, family
1: yeah. finally turns on her and starts to interrogate her about what she knows and how it's all working. And she comes out of the the house and she's going to get into Ransom's car. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a it's a supposed to be a it is a it's a steady cam that moves uh, towards them. But at the moment that uh, the camera operator is supposed to it, it takes the camera off. He like broke the stabilizer. So half, <laughs> halfway through the shot. Uh, it gets really bumpy and, um, and loose and, and, and not great, but it's emotionally perfect because she comes out of the house and just as it, as, as the people surround her and she feels emotionally, uh, surrounded and interrogated and, and unsafe, the camera gets like, Whoa, like this and follows <laughs> her the whole way. And it was totally an accident. And I, it couldn't be more on point that I is, got another, that is my I, favorite moment in the film when that kick, <laughs> when it breaks I'm serious like in the theater I jumped out of my seat when it broke right. because it, it was it was the perfect moment for that that movement right you can't <laughs> believe that he didn't that it wasn't intentional uh you never you ever know there's also that there's also a famous camera bump uh in when Sharon Stone and and uh De Niro are in bed in casino
0: mm-hmm. uh, yes th- yeah, and it yeah, sort yeah. of
1: di- it dips behind the side table for and he just left it
0: yeah. Yeah. I mean, recently uh we just had him on the show, the editor for Mandy. Have you seen Mandy, the Nicolas Cage? I haven't. Uh oh, dude. There's a spoiler alert, there's a great sequence in that where Nicolas Cage has like an epic breakdown. Like an epic breakdown that happens in it. And I won't I won't ruin it, but when you watch the movie, you'll see uh the this camera pushes in essentially on a one take, and this camera pushes in and then it stops. And it has this awkward moment where it kind of backs up and then it pushes in again. And uh, I talked to the editor about it and I said, it's such a fucking crazy moment. And from my perspective, it seems like Nicolas Cage was doing something that no one was predicting. And they were in the middle of doing another camera <laughs> move. And Nicolas Cage! And, yeah. <laughs> and they were like, okay, oh, fuck, fuck, oh, fuck, just go and go and go. And so it just seemed like that. And we talked to him on the show and he goes, no, what had happened was, is as, they, as Nick Cage was tearing through this chest he ends up pulling out a towel and he throws a towel onto the set and what the dolly operator didn't realize is that the towel landed on the track uh, <laughs> and so as they're dollying in he gets caught up on something and the assistant camera guy has to run around and they have to back it off the towel and he has to pull it off and nick cage is having like the the performance of his career in the sequence and uh good on the director um panos for just going leave it in it's it it. leave it in i
1: mean you want to you want to talk about like commitment to the to the practical and to the the honoring the filmmaking process we i mean we made a show that has a starring role for werner herzog so uh you know and and like we did you know this is early on uh this is like day four of filming and Uh we're doing the first bits with the Baby, baby Yoda puppet, which you think is working, but you don't really know, and that <laughs> must be nerve-wracking,
0: uh, right? And so,
1: just as nat- as the nature, we did, a, we wanted to get a take uh, without the without the puppet in the bassinet, in case mm-hmm. we needed to replace it with a CG CG baby Yoda, then there would be a clean plate for that. Yeah, and yeah. Werner was not into it. Uh, <laughs> he was like, yeah, he he was like, this is an act of cowardice. We must. <laughs> <laughs> you must commit to the baby. Uh and and he, he also he also thinks he also thinks dailies are an act of cowardice. So I don't know. But uh he, he he was he was all about he you know and he was super into it. My other favorite thing about Werner Herzog is he he acts like you don't know who he is. <laughs> yes.
0: <Yeah. As> if- <laughs> so
1: so he you know during during takes or between takes he was like talking about you know uh, the difficulties of filmmaking, and and he was like, I once made, I once made a film where we where we took a boat and we dragged, and we're
0: like, yeah, yeah, we know, we know, we know, we know about the boat movie. Uh, you're Werner Herzog. Uh, we know who you are.
1: And he would ask Hulk. He was very curious about the whole technology and how it all worked, and and it yeah. was it was great.
0: He's like watching my movies is cowardice,
1: but he liked. You know, he was into it because he thought it. Like, you know, it brought it made it holistic again. It made it yes. collaborative again. Even though it's obviously a very effects thing, everybody, the actors can see what's out there. Uh, we can change stuff live that affects, you know, the it. There's a one of my favorite things about this process is that it, it takes it, it, it both requires and then pays off on so much collaboration that feels yeah. really, really cool.
0: See, it's, I'm fascinated with it because. A lot of stuff that I've done over the years, whether it's with music videos or even with some of my horror stuff, I, I do a lot of stage stuff and I really enjoy that. And I did a video years ago where we got in some like concert LEDs um, hmm. and did backdrops for that. And I found that it was really exciting and really fun, but it was kind of restrictive too because I can only shoot at a certain focal length because I started yep. to get more ring. Does that stuff still exist with this new tech? Are you still restricted by... The lenses Um, that you
1: can use and stuff so yes and no there are a lot of you know we are developing this as we go right it kind of feels like we're landing on the moon and and you know every day but you know kind of like with landing on the moon it quickly becomes commonplace and and accepted yes and you forget how incredibly diabolically difficult it is to to pull off so (laughs) there are restrictions but they're getting less and less all the time so the in terms of You know, uh, shooting restrictions. We can work with almost with any lens package uh we just need to what we do as we're ramping up a, a a show is we do some we do extensive lens profiling and gridding and shooting to be able to precisely map the distortion of that particular lens and it's right. fov and, and everything so then right. as the dp is switching lenses on the day we also swap to the lens profile that is perfectly complementary to that to that specific lens and if they send out one for repair or something in the middle of the season we have to profile it again that kind of stuff in terms in terms of more or artifacting on the walls, that's a lot less of a thing than it used to be because LEDs have gotten so much more fine in their dot pitch. Mm-hmm. So uh, as they've gotten more and more detailed, you can have a focal plane that's closer and closer to the actual plane of the walls. You still don't want to get directly on it in super crisp uh, uh, focus, but you mm-hmm. can you can be off of it a lot less than you used to. You used to really have to throw that thing off. Now, it, it, yes. it, it really helps... You know for our first uses on the mandalorian and we're now uh you know working on all kinds of other uh shows and, and features um but it was helpful that the aesthetic of the mandalorian is very 1977 new hope anamorphic uh mm-hmm. type of mm-hmm. look that is also happens to be whether george knew that he was designing it back then or not very led friendly so it doesn't <laughs> look like an aesthetic compromise or anything like that it just looks like awesome like well how the show uh should look uh, but right, right. so it, i wouldn't call them restrictions so much as considerations
0: got it man and yeah because that because ultimately when you're doing that stuff with anamorphic you're dealing with shallow depth of field anyways and you're kind of in that space right which, which i love and um, the the
1: thing that people underestimate is how delicate and how much work goes into the color yeah. because when, when you think about the path that that color is taking where you're looking at real practical set, real talent. uh, And then, you know, you're basically pointing a camera at TVs. Mm -hmm. And when you think about the spectrum of light, that's coming off of them, that needs to go into the lens and then come and have it all blend and look perfect. That's the one that we really spend a lot of time on getting the color just right. And that whole color pipeline to work uh, in terms of like that specific camera body that uh, that lens that lut that whole thing to get that um you know to get all that stood up and then the idea would be that we do that homework in the weeks leading up to production so on the day where we've got multiple camera bodies going we got a and b going we got lens changes that we can just pop between all these scientifically set up uh presets that make it all just look amazing and the production never has to worry about it
0: that's that's also really interesting because are you getting color variations so you have like normally when you're lighting you're dealing with reflected color or reflect, reflected light mm-hmm. so the camera's capturing light that's being reflected off of an object so now you have light that's being transmitted by an object essentially so through the LEDs and then it's also being bounced and reflected off of the objects in the foreground so are you seeing color differences and shifts between what's on the screen and what it's actually projecting, or does it all seem to flow? Yeah,
1: I mean, it's way. all balanced for the lens. It all, by the way, you also sometimes have practical lights too, oh, so right. all that's going on. And yeah, sometimes the in-person experience, you'll go ah, that that mountain looks a little looks a little green and weird in the shadows, or that you know the ceiling looks a little off there, and you almost and you are very tempted to correct it to your eye what it's like to be standing on stage, but then you go to the reference monitor and it looks amazing. And you hmm. realize how much is going on in the color pipeline to make it look. The whole system is designed uh, all to go to the camera from its perspective, from its color, from from everything. So you have to constantly remind yourself that uh, the the truth is is on the monitor, not what you're seeing when you're out there.
0: On that show, what camera bodies were you, were you guys shooting? Alexas? like what were you yeah. doing on that?
1: Yeah, show? Uh, yeah. Uh, LFs and minis. Uh, are, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. That's cool. Really cool, man. And then what was the lens I mean if I can ask, what was the lens package that they were shooting with, Do you know?
1: Well, uh Greg Fraser and and Baz uh and the 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 DPs had they you know they were custom specific uh glass mostly um like I said anamorphic uh and uh mostly longer lenses. Again, it's shot like a western. So yeah. It's a lot, you know, I can't remember, we very rarely got anything wider than a 50, and most of the time it lived in the 75 to 100 uh,
0: range. Right, 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 which makes sense for that time period too, and to make that match, yeah. that does make a lot of sense. Exactly. Um, we had Greg we, on one of our prior episodes. and we, Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, very excited to talk to him about his. Op- love his fucking style, man. I'm super yeah. excited about the new Batman. Well, I movie.
1: mean, and what a role! So he, you know, he had to. He came off. He did the first couple episodes of Mandalorian and had been working with Baz the whole time. And Baz took the baton from him and, and shot uh, a lot of the other episodes. And then talk about a one-two punch. Greg's gone off to now do Dune and the Batman. <laughs> uh, pretty solid yeah pretty solid there,
0: yeah yeah two shitty movies coming out <laughs> <laughs> right um, but he's still yeah.
1: he's still very uh, much a part of our development and our and advising on our tool set and working with new DPs as he as he come on. He's become sort of the the sage of this um, shooting style and helped even shape our tools and uh, our our virtual lighting kit and all that kind of stuff. so he's still very much uh, participating and involved.
0: That's super cool now I, uh if you don't mind, the show if yes, you don't mind, i
1: I actually want to point out that, yes, we had Greg on, but the reason we were able to get you on is because somebody had posted on Reddit a comment about the <laughs> uh, the technology that you were working on in the Mandalorian, and I came in arguing exactly what you were saying is that the eye it looked different, and so what I wrongly assumed that even if you were working on it, there was a lot of work that was going into it that maybe it, somebody might've missed something, but you came in to correct me that you guys had obviously been looking for the camera. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. I can't remember what it was. It might've been what it's, you know, it's been interesting working on a show in in the, in the, in Star Wars, which I've now done a few times, right? Obviously you've got a lot of things going on, but the security of it is a, is a big deal. Uh, yeah. And especially in this case where they really wanted to keep uh, our friend, baby Yoda a secret. So there yeah. was very little in the way of advanced uh, materials. And specifically also, we didn't want to talk about how we made it until well after the season had aired, because that's not the story that it none of this, the, it, the idea is to create great, pictures for everybody and we didn't want anybody sort of squinting at the screen you know during the season going like "Well, wait is this one of those uh, LED volume type of deals or this kooky holodeck they're using is this one of those so we didn't talk about it but of course a lot of stills and behind the scenes stuff did come out that wasn't didn't mention the volume at all but happened to be shot on the volume and things there was some talk early on where uh, people saw stuff and they were like this this show looks weird or does, is this like a weird scale set or something? Cause they didn't know what they were looking at. And inevitably what they were looking at was something that was either from a still photographer or behind the scenes uh, camera, which was not calibrated or lensed or uh, right. showing the, the way that the production camera works. So yeah, things looked a little weird and people didn't understand why they looked a little weird. So then I think later after we sort of showed our hand, then people would look at some of that behind the scenes material and be like, This looks, but wait, look, it looks all janky in the background, or there's more a on there back there. Did you have to deal with that? And I was like, No, it's more a because that is some behind the scenes camera with a 35 millimeter spherical on it. And it, it's that's not what the system is, is catering so, towards.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's fascinating. It's fascinating too because then. As a filmmaker, you kind of don't want to show your hand either because you don't want people staring at it going, he's just walking in front of a screen here. Like when I right. when I first watched the show, I was like, man, okay, this is rad. And my, my first thought was like, how the fuck did they pull this off on a TV schedule? You know what yeah. I mean? And and ultimately, that's the purpose of this whole thing is to try to do that quality technically, but on a ridiculous TV budget and TV schedule. Correct?
1: Yeah. I mean, it. it... Certainly, especially what's great about the Mandalorian production is that it's so bought in on this shooting style. We shot about half the show this way, to be clear. But it started to become a matter of, like, oh, well, you know, kind of like I was talking about with Dead Space, once this thing, once we knew this thing was going to work, how do we create content that is, you know, how do we write things, scenes that'll really work for this? But even, yeah, just practically. So a, a quick example is, Late in episode two, after they've had the fight with the, um, the Mudhorn, Mando is sitting on a, uh, a rock in the desert at twilight, fixing his armor and he's got some wounds and it's a little moment where baby Yoda is going to come and maybe heal him or something like that. Right. It's a quick, I don't know. It's maybe two minutes. Mm-hmm. So how would you do that normally? Well, you could take everybody out to the desert. <laughs> um, cool. So you got, you got to take a whole crew out to the desert. Uh, it's going to be cold And given the coverage and you got a puppet to work with and a whole kind of stuff, there's no way you're going to get it done in one night's light, which is probably going to be about half an hour, 45 minutes, um, in that lighting condition. So you're going to be there for two, three nights Mm
0: -hmm. and have
1: a whole, you know, what are you like 50, 60 people out there for two or three nights? And it's a whole pain. Um, or you could do it on a back lot and then add the background later in a, in a blue screen, I suppose, but even still, you got the light problems. But for us, we shot that in about 12 hours, had total control over the light, and it was magic hour for 12 hours all day. That's crazy. And you got it done, you know, if you want to just worry about the economics of it, you get it done in one shooting day and everybody goes home to their houses and apartments and and it's good.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Now it's crazy. I mean, a lot of people don't realize that, you know, the best time to shoot period is in magic hour. And, and Magic Hour is called Magic Hour because it's literally an hour. <laughs> so, yeah. so, so when right. you're dealing with a huge production, Magic Hour is a nightmare, especially for a DP who's just pulling his hair out going, can we fucking shoot? Another fun,
1: <laughs> another fun one is, you know, it's common, right, uh, for, these, for Magic Hour, that kind of stuff, when you've got coverage a, and, you know, three people talking or two people talking, you, to shoot one half in the morning and one half in the night, right, when you're covering <laughs> both sides. <laughs> well, uh for us, we just would shoot it, and let's say it's like a dolly track or something like that. um we would shoot our one side. You don't even have to move your dolly. You just take the whole world and go and rotate it 180, and we are rolling again uh, <laughs> so and crazy. and if it's like if it's a forgiving enough practical set with maybe some dirt and rocks and and bumps, you don't even notice that the ground didn't change, but the whole yeah. environment uh, just just turned around and you can so- shoot it like a French reverse.
0: It's so cool, man. And so for technically, for my... Because I'm curious about this as a director. So what do you guys do... Do you guys design, so is it all in the pre, in the prep? So you, you guys have conversations about the scenes. You probably do a bunch of really good uh, concept artwork for it. And then you're like, okay, so I we know we need a desert world, and we need this world, and we need that world. Is it early in the production that you guys are just designing those spaces, like a desert space and this space, and, and then you just bring them onto set and the director has to play in those spaces? Like, how does that work? Uh,
1: well, it even happens even earlier than that. So I would say the most... To really get the benefit out of this kind of stuff and the way it really sings is that collaboration that I was talking about, but there is logistics to that. So yes, the way it typically works is in the months leading up to shoot, uh, the key creatives, your director and DP and everybody would be talking about, okay, where is this, you know, what is this scene? And they're just designing the scene as you would in, in anything, whether it's a desert environment or whatever. And then there is location scouting just as there normally uh, would be. Sometimes it's an all CG location if it's like a space hangar, but if it's out in the desert, we'll just literally go out to the desert. The good news is you only have to send one or two people instead of 50, and then we'll do scanning and, and, um, LIDAR and everything to be able to digitally recreate that environment as much as possible. But then, uh, on Mandal, it's not, not everybody has to do this, but the Mandalorian team uh, is so advanced and in- integrated with this kind of stuff that they'll do full VR scouting in those That's locations crazy. once we have yeah. that up to be able to, because the big thing you have to decide at some point leading up to it is, okay, but where are we going to be? Where are we going to put this on its feet? You don't nearly need to decide where you're going to look that much. The camera has freedom, but you need to figure out where people are physically going to be, where are they going to walk? What are they going to touch? What needs to be really physically there? And mm-hmm. then at some point, depending on the complexity of the, of the set that we're going to make, that gets handed off to us at ILM to make the digital parts and to the practical art department to make the, the physical set. Right. So you need to make those calls ahead of time, which means like your DP needs to be part of the project, maybe earlier than they might be used to being part of the project because Mm -hmm. a lot of the light on the day is going to come from this environment. And we want the DP and the key creatives to be involved lighting that environment digitally with us in the weeks and months leading up to, up to shoot. So it can be difficult if you've got a movie that starts in March, maybe your DP is still working on another movie in January. Well, that's, Mm -hmm. that's, but we want them to be involved in, in in what we're doing. So yes, there's a lot of prep work because ideally what you're doing is taking a lot of your VFX budget and your VFX time and your post time and moving it before. And and as a result, getting richer, more collaborative images that hang together. And you're not trying to like do dodgy post fixes because it's it's all coming together. But that does mean there is a lot of work that happens in the prep and everybody collaborating on what we're gonna do. So that on the day you do have that freedom to experiment and shoot where you want
0: and 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 do all kinds of stuff yeah because the prep's got to be really front front heavy at that point because you yeah. guys literally have to design the entire background for this thing so yeah i mean must- we
1: still do plenty of post i don't want to uh diminish the contribution at all of all the post work that was done on on mandalorian thousands of vfx shots were still still done uh, yeah, yeah on that but uh yes it, it, there's plenty going on ahead of
0: time too that's pretty crazy. And how long, I, I'm sure it all depends on on the complexity of what the background looks like, but generally, how long does it usually take you guys to, to construct a, like a desert background?
1: Oh, that's that- pretty quick. When you're talking about a location there that you're largely, and whenever possible, we try to start with real locations and real photography because it's photo real and you want to stay, this whole thing has to look photo real. You have to completely buy it for the trick to work. So typically mm-hmm. we always start, whether we're going to augment it with a ton of computer graphics or not, we start with real locations. So in most of those cases, that's a that's a couple of a few week turnaround to create a, a full environment. A lot of what we're doing in that case, is working with the director and working with stuff to talk about what needs to happen there, because that affects what kind of techniques we're going to use. For instance, you know, uh, also a lot of the planet Navarro from season one of, of Mandalorian is um, it's it's a lava lava planet, very Icelandic in its topology. Right. So we got a lot of stuff from Hawaii and, and, and from Iceland. Mm-hmm. But it also needed to have a lot of square mileage because there's a biker scout chase where they're <laughs> they're flying along on their motorcycles, and we did a lot of that on the volume. So that means we needed to have, you know, we needed to use tools that gave us a lot of geography. If you're mostly sitting in one spot. Uh, for a scene, then we can take more shortcuts and we can do more things like projected photography or, or photo mapping and that kind of stuff that'll give you a great looking environment but a relatively small area in which to explore and that of course is obviously quicker because we're just making less so it kind of depends but somewhere between a couple of weeks to very elaborate sets like the roost hanger from season one, which is the where all the kind of biker gang uh, group that he falls in with in, in episode six that's like a multi football field long dense set with mm-hmm. digit doubles and sparks and atmosphere and cranes moving and um all kinds of stuff that we shot in for like a week and a half multiple scenes at multiple heights that one took more like three
0: months to to make wow. version of it. wow 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 it's cool man it's really wild. It's like, it's this really interesting blend of like VR and like practical shooting. And it's really interesting stuff, man. Yeah,
1: it's, I, I mean, and it's it's such a, what I think is going to really, you know, we've all seen cool tools come up before and, and, and bits, of, bits of things that people are excited about. But I think this one feels different for a few different reasons. But one of the reasons is I feel like there's something in it for everybody. Uh, and the way that it brings a filmmaking team together and you don't have a director shooting on blue screen that then, you know, months mm-hmm. later is sitting at a VFX house going, "Ow, oh, I didn't I didn't I meant to add a city back there, but I thought I'd be different than that city or <laughs> a DP on the day who is lighting what's in front of them, which is a few props and a person. And there's a bunch of blue back there and they don't really know. And then later, a VFX team is trying to figure out where the camera was based on you know, some notes that someone wrote and a, and a shiny ball and, right, um, right. <laughs> and then, but even when it comes to actors, actors can actually see what's around them. Uh, gaffers have all these new tools and possibilities to augment the, the lighting and stuff that they're used to. Uh, even produ- pr- uh, production and everybody else can have cool, flexible, new ways of scheduling. It feels like it offers something for everyone
0: yeah 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 and
1: and right now, and up until now, of course, it's been the the purview of of a few high end big time productions because it costs a ton of st to stand one of these stages up. It is incredibly exacting and scientific to get all the bugs worked out once you do stand it up in terms of the color in terms of the profiling and all that kind of stuff so mm-hmm. for season one of Mandalorian, that was like we built it and we weren't sure. And let's see how this goes. But what now that it's really, we think going to be, I don't know if we're ever going to not do it as part of a production in some capacity. Yeah. Now these stages are going to exist. So you don't have to build your own and you don't need to spend five months in there to amortize that cost and have it make sense. They're they're going to exist, whether it's ILMs or or, or others, although I would I would submit that ours is going to be the coolest and best.
0: I'm Uh, sure most likely. Yes.
1: (laughs) uh, But I think there's going to be a chance for all kinds of people to access it for a day, a week, a month or whatever, or, and to solve one particular problem that their production might have. Maybe just our third act happens in this crazy environment that we can never actually get to, but now we can. And so the opportunities for creative participation and for people to to use this kind of technology is going to spread uh at all kinds of production levels and and need cases and and all kinds of stuff that I think is going to be super uh fun and and exciting uh going forward
0: how much uh it is really exciting and, and how much how much bigger is the crew at this point? So how, like for for the stage itself and and then your brain bar and all that kind of stuff. What are we talking? Like 12 more people, 20 more people?
1: Well, it depends on what you're doing. Um but the the question would be it's the the, the total crew might not grow at all and actually might even shrink. And uh, and of course, given the the circumstances that we've been in, you know, the past 6 months, this has come up a lot for us where productions yeah. have come to us and asked, "Hey, is there use if we shot this way what does that mean can we have fewer people on stage because there's all kinds of new rules uh and because you you're not moving in nearly as elaborate a set and you don't need um necessarily the same the the same lighting or 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 whatever there's a possibility that your crew shrinks overall mm. Mm-hmm. Um so we have our own team of specialists that 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 is on stage every day that grows and changes depending on the needs of the needs of the production um mm-hmm. and and you know from just a couple to you know a dozen depending
0: Yeah yeah i assume that when you're talking mandalorian you're talking star wars then you guys have you guys have pulled out you know the ferraris <laughs> at that point you guys have like the the top of the well, line Well where
1: you can't mess way. around i mean i would submit that we that we all are ferraris at <laughs> Uh, so it's not like we're going like to send multiple us. you know? Oh, this is just a, yeah, exactly. We're not going to yeah, send yeah. just like some jokers and, and pretenders uh, <laughs> just because it's only one or two of them. Uh, but yeah, I mean, part of the deal that, as you referenced, the challenge of Mandalorian was not just that you're creating a, a TV show, but that having anything that was anything less than Star Wars feature quality yeah. is not an option. It's yeah, Star Wars. Yeah. People have expectations, rightfully, and they deserve to have their minds blown, and so the standard is 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 quite high.
0: Well, dude, I, we're hitting that point, so we're, we're we're clocking in on an hour here. It's been a really great conversation, a fascinating conversation about all this stuff. Uh, very excited to see what you guys because the news just released that season two is coming out soon. So very. That's excited right.
1: They see. just announced season two coming on October thirtieth uh, to Disney Plus. And yeah. I'm I'm excited for people to see uh, all the things I can't talk about and all the all the levels. I mean, because like the journey over the course of season one went from, man, is this thing going to work? I think it's going to work. Hey, it's kind of working to who by the end of season one going, holy crap, what if we could do this? And what if we yeah. did that? And we just started to feel ourselves a little bit about what the possibilities were in season one. But then we had a bunch of months to. Uh, pay off and and have our ambitions grow and and see what the next things that are possible. So I'm really looking forward uh, for everybody to see what that amazing team uh, has been able to do.
0: And I haven't I haven't done the research yet, but uh, it, I, I'm assuming that a lot of the same directors are returning to do season two. Correct, or is it a whole new casting? Are you allowed to talk about that? Is a whole new cast of characters? Well,
1: I, I can only talk about what's been officially uh, announced. Uh, but uh, it's a mix there are definitely some awesome new uh, folks involved and there was definitely um some you know i think after people saw what season 1 uh you know and were in, in, intrigued by the possibilities of this both cre- you know creatively and technically um, mm-hmm. some pretty heavy hitting new new producers and uh, new new directors are on the scene and then we've got some returning all stars from last year too
0: Yeah, because that would be interesting. Because for me, at least as a director, you sort of come in and you're like, okay, this is really experimental. And then you spend like a week or two weeks or whatever it is working with this tech. And then afterwards, you go, fuck, I just want to get back in here now that I know how this works and how that works. You know what I mean? Yeah,
1: it's absolutely. Once you kind of see and, you know, Uh, Once you see stuff and it's like you, you sort of dip your toe in the water of like, I I don't know, can we pull off this? Is that going to look weird? And, uh, (laughs) and then you do it and it looks better than you ever expected. And you go, Oh my God, I'm building a whole set around this next time. And then, you know, that goes on or, or, you know, now we're having the experience as new productions and new shows of all kinds of different creative perspectives and challenges are coming on. They're like, that's all good, but you know, can we make it rain in there? And you're like, well, I think you could make it rain in there. We didn't do rain last time, but I think you could do rain. Well, what would if? What happened if you did rain? And it turns out it looks incredible.
0: Oh, man, uh, I can't wait. Yeah, yeah, by yeah. the
1: way, I am offering no specific example of the rain. That's not from a, any, that's sure, not a spoiler sure, sure. on anything. Sure, sure. Uh, <laughs> but then you go,
0: oh my God, next, next show. We got to have rain town. Uh, and, and there you go. Yeah, man. I'm very excited about the whole thing. And I appreciate you taking the time with us today. Um I would say this is usually the part of the episode where I ask the guests to give a little bit of advice to people that are coming up because there's a lot of young filmmakers, a lot of people trying to figure out how to get into the business. Um, and this is kind of developing itself to being a whole new aspect of a film crew, like an onset film crew kind of thing. Yeah. Um, if uh, What are some of the new really exciting onset jobs that come with this, do you think, that are new? Well, um, it's, it's,
1: there's, there's so many. So first of all, there's myself. So a virtual production supervisor, right? My job is to be the interface and, and leader, leader for our team and the interface with the client to so both, you know, ahead of shoot. And then on the day to, so they know what's up, like what's possible. We can mm-hmm. do this. We can do that. Oh, you want this to happen? Well, that can't quite happen, et cetera, et cetera, all the way through, um, you know, you wouldn't think that a compositor, it's like an evolution of compositing, which you think is like a, a, a post role, but now we have someone on set doing not necessarily laying things on a 2d image, but doing manipulations in the color in the world live that blend the physical set to the, um, to the virtual one, mm-hmm. there's all kinds of stuff. So it's, you know, it's the, it's the, the, this kind of advice that has always existed, Make sure you got your fundamentals. So I, I would say, here's my two part yin yang advice. Mm-hmm. It's great news that the tools are never more uh, accessible than than they ha- than they are right now. So Unreal is free. If you want to get into real time uh, possibilities, Unreal is free. You can download it right now on your on your computer, and there's all kinds of possibilities to be able to use a practical camera of some sort you don't need to be necessarily even getting into leds but in terms of virtual cinematography and figuring out uh, what are the possibilities there you know you can use your phone to control a camera within unreal there's all kinds of possibilities to get dip your toe in that water at the same time no one is that impressed that you know x tool anyone (laughs) clever can pick up most tools pretty quickly so don't fall in love with tool knowledge and because you're some certified expert in blank tool set or software that's not going to be that big a deal so simultaneously get your fundamentals know you know whether that's cinematography or color theory or 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 whatever it is or you know proportion and composition you got to have that stuff tight and then you know and then play around uh with the stuff because there's never been more knowledge and never been more accessibility for the tools than there is right now, which is pretty exciting. I just caution people against skipping right to that without
0: doing the other Dude, stuff. Dude, it's good advice. It's good advice. And it's got to be exciting for a lot of folks that are usually just doing the post and locked in that, you know, fix it in post world where you're locked into a uh, an office somewhere and you're staring at a computer by yourself. It must be really exciting for like the onset compositors, because you're essentially performing (laughs) your task to people. Exactly.
1: I will say practically one of the things that's so great compared to the iteration loop, I kind of referenced that way back in the thing about, about games, but as a digital artist or as a filmmaker, right. You don't necessarily know what is your, your, your feedback loop, you know, unless you're, unless you're lucky enough to, to be the director and the one giving the feedback. Right, it might be hours before you know if what you're doing is working. (laughs) But what's what's great about this is, oh, you know, you've got a hundred people standing inside your monitor, so whatever you do, it is, it does almost feel like a performance. And the and the time frame, sometimes we're doing stuff between takes, so there'll be times where I'm standing on the volume and I see like a shadow that is sitting kind of funny or something that is buzzing in the frame, not as a digital problem, but just like that, that red light there is a little hot or it's throwing a little kick in a way that's distracting. And the DP is worrying about bigger stuff, but I think it could be better. And I'll just be on my mic going like, all right, man, listen, uh, give me, give me just a second. Okay. Bring that down. Okay. Be ready to undo it at any moment. Okay. They're about to roll. Okay. Be ready to undo. Okay. Okay. Hands off, hands off, hands off. (laughs) And we're doing stuff in like seconds or, or 30 seconds or two minutes that you might be used to be doing over the course of, of, of many hours. And so, Sounds. uh, that it can be quite an adrenaline rush. Although the, it, the, it does take a certain personality type because it is, you know, y- you, know how it's like on set and yes. some of these yes. big time, big time sets where you can see the money. Uh, it's a big deal. I've had ADs come to me and go, how long will that take? And I, and you know, they want accurate and I'll say eight minutes, And they'll hold up a stopwatch and click it in my face. And then, (laughs) and then, you know, I got, and when at the specific time I said that, I know that we got it done in six minutes and 17 seconds, because she came back to me and went click and showed me the clock. Uh, And I knew that my credibility was on the line. So if you're the kind of person that thrives in a high pressure atmosphere and being creative under the gun, uh, then maybe this is something you'd be interested in.
0: (laughs) Well, super cool, man. Thank you so much for your time, Ian. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I really appreciate you uh, having me on. Thank you, man. Thank you so much. And uh, for those of you listening, like uh, check it out, get ready for season two. Um, And uh, we'll have all sorts of links and stuff below the episode on our website. Uh, So thank you everybody for listening and thanks for being on, bud. That was a great episode, right? That ended up being really great. I always get nervous when we do a real nerdy episode because it's like, this is gonna get real techy, it's gonna get real deep. And look, full disclosure on how I do things. Whenever I have a guest on the show, I do a bit of research, right? I may go look at other interviews that they've done. I may do a little research in the background because I feel like it's the polite thing to do. If I'm gonna ask you to be on the show, the least I can do is go look at your history so I have some of that loaded and ready to rock, right? But if it's a great conversation, I try to throw all that out the window, right? We get into a conversation, we start talking about stuff. Now, I really enjoyed the shit that we started talking about with video games, right? Because the more I understand how that market works, the more I understand uh, how to tell stories in that world, which I think is really interesting. Something fascinating about creating a narrative, creating a world in which a user can walk their way through. and. A lot of that technology is now gonna be used in filmmaking. And that's what we were talking about with the volume and all this new LED technology. Um, there's something really interesting about being able to go to a stage and shoot magic hour all day. That's huge. That's really huge. And we kind of glazed over it on the show, but think about it. You wanna get that epic color in the sky silhouette and, uh, you know, of a, of a lead character sitting on the back of a speeder, right? You know, and you got to spend all day doing that. And look, the bigger the sets are, the bigger the puppetry is, or the more advanced that the costumes are, the more advanced that the lighting is, or all this sort of stuff. When you get to Star Wars level, it just takes a lot longer to shoot. You just ultimately have a lot more people to corral, right? And so getting these shots has always been difficult especially at that level sure if we're just running around and you and your pals are running around and you accidentally shoot a shot on the on the cliff face of uh one of the cliffs on the beach of the pacific coast like we did for uh the as i lay dying video not as i lay dying for a kill switch engage always video right and there's that end shot in magic hour where nick is sort of sitting there with his dying brother and they're looking out into the ocean and we have that really beautiful sunset Uh, that's just because it was like six of us right two cameras no real technical stuff no real makeup nothing so we can run around and bang that shit out pretty quick but even then if you watch the reversal shots right on nick's face is the sun setting that's not the sun setting that's me after the sun has gone down because we were only able to get behind him then bringing in a one by one led light and then turning that up and down in that space because we just didn't have enough time to get both so i think one of the coolest parts for me with this new tech is that you're able to shoot in motion in moments like that in environments like that indefinitely because you're essentially building that world and building that background now i can't wait to see and i'm going to check it out i really want to see if the new season has fixed what I've seen on screen is a lot of restrictions, and what I assume are a lot of restrictions, as far as how stuff is shot. Because like I said on the show, I've messed around with older versions of LED walls, and I found specific restrictions with that. So I'm really interested in the stuff, and maybe when fucking COVID ends, I'll hang out with Ian. Maybe I'll get down there and see how this stuff actually works. Uh, because it, uh, you can do a lot of really cool stuff with it. And that's the most important part. It's not about playing with the new sexy gear. It's literally just about being able to do those bigger sequences in your third act, right? Because as budgets come down, and we're seeing this, right? You're either spending millions, billions on tentpole movies, and then all of the smaller films, the smaller horror movies and all that stuff, we're not getting nearly as much money. And you're expected to create big hits for $5 million, under $10 million. And where it suffers, honestly, guys, where it suffers is in the third act. That's where it really comes, comes down to it. As the budgets come down, the scale and the scope and the payoff comes down. Because most movies are dropping all their cash in the, in the build, right? And you're looking for trailer meat. And you see that all the time, especially in horror stuff. So my big argument is always like can I please pay this off? Can I please show dinosaurs at the end of this movie? Right? So hopefully with this new tech it makes it more financially feasible to do so. That's what makes me curious about it. It's not about using the sexy new toys. It's about being able to tell the stories within the real life uh restrictions that we have. So anyway, enough about all that stuff. Thank you guys for listening to the show. And as always, thank you to the amazing Code Electro for providing our background music. Uh, he continues to inspire. I just posted some sexy pictures of him last week. He's looking good with his red beard, his turtleneck. He knows what's up. Uh, go check him out. Uh, we'll post below for his website. Go check out Code Electro's stuff. I think he's still selling vinyls. Uh, you might you want to pick up his stuff, man. I'm telling you, I love it. You hear it on the show all the time. I'll support him. And thank you as always for supporting us and I will see you next Tuesday.